Companies who want a piece of projects funded by last year's infrastructure bill pay attention. The White House is coming out with lots of new rules for the Build America by American Act, or BABA. Haynes Boone Procurement Attorney Dan Ramish joins me now with the details. And specifically, there are several statutes that have to do with Buy American and supporting American industry under federal procurement. The BABA bill. Tell us about that one. The BABA Act is a new, as of last year, with the IIJA, a new statute that provides general applicability rules, giving preferences to American-produced products. And this is for all infrastructure projects funded by federal financial assistance. Now, to step back for a second, Buy American laws have a long history in this country. The Buy American Act of 1933 was the original statute that introduced preferences for American-made products and supplies. That statute, for those who are familiar with federal procurement contracts, the Buy American Act and Trade Agreements Act govern domestic preferences for contracts. Grants and cooperative agreements and other federal financial assistance are handled separately. They're not subject to the federal acquisition regulations. They're subject to the OMB uniform guidance as it's adopted by individual grant regulations of agencies. So this infrastructure money is coming through primarily state and local governments in the form of grants and other financial assistance. And those entities will then award contracts to construction companies. And these new rules under the BABA Act will govern as a floor for those projects uh, the use of American-made iron and steel, construction materials, and manufactured products. Right. So just to clarify then, the contract will be with state agencies and maybe large city agencies, but the money will be from the federal government, probably through the Transportation Department, I'm guessing, but through grants to local entities who will then award contracts. And so because it's ultimately federal money, then there are federal rules. That's right. And there were some statutes actually referred to as, confusingly, the Buy America statute, no end. And these were separate statutes applying to different operating administrations of the Department of Transportation. So the Federal Highway Administration, the Federal Transit Administration, the Federal Railroad Administration. They each had their own statutes with separate rules that were similar but not identical. But not all agencies were covered by this. The Buy America statutes covered transportation projects with DOT. Now the BABA Act covers all agencies and all infrastructure projects funded with financial assistance. And notably, the DOT by America statutes that predate the BABA didn't cover construction materials. Now we have the Infrastructure Act, $550 billion of infrastructure funding over five years. So the Biden administration wanted to ensure that we're maximizing the use of American-made goods. So that was the purpose of the BABA Act. And now OMB has introduced guidance to be added to the uniform guidance that will tell state and local governments and ultimately contractors what they need to comply with to buy American infrastructure projects. Got it. Now, this will obviously apply directly to people that are buying products to be put on a construction site and bolted and welded and screwed into a building, let's say, or laid down underneath a bridge, whatever the case might be. But does it also back up possibly to, say, design and architectural firms who have to specify products and therefore they have to make sure that there is an American source for what it is they specify? Yeah. So the way it works, 
there will be an award term, so a contract clause that will go into the grants with state and local governments. And that requirement in the term for the use of American-made iron and steel construction materials and manufactured products will then go into the contracts with construction companies. And construction companies will then have to pass on those requirements if they're using architectural and engineering support. And so down the line, if we're dealing with commercial construction companies that haven't dealt with some of these requirements before, they may not have processes in place for knowing their full supply chain. And so this will really involve closer examination of who is ultimately providing the supplies and materials that go into these projects. We're speaking with Dan Ramish. He's a procurement attorney at Haynes Boone. And that's an important point because a lot of iron and steel and engineered products, I-beams or whatever, pre-made trusses, you name it, might be manufactured in the United States, but the source of the raw materials, the steel in them, is very often foreign. Korean, for example, or Japanese. I don't know what the latest top steel producing companies are. The last I checked, it was Korea, but that's a long time ago. So you have to really go back in the supply chain, even though you might be buying that truss from a fabricator in Georgia. You got to know where that steel came from that the fabricator used. Right. And state and local governments and construction companies are looking closely at these requirements as they evolve and the proposed guidance because those details will matter. And so the proposed guidance to be added to the uniform guidance includes information about what it even means to be produced in the United States for different types of construction materials, kind of what the manufacturing process entails. Everyone has a vested interest in that and how those definitions come together. Do we know whether it goes back in the supply chain? Do the rules go back to ore, for example? Because ore might be mined elsewhere and brought to the United States and then smelted or otherwise turned into metal here. So does that make it U.S.-sourced metal? Or if the ore comes from overseas on a barge or some kind of a large ship, what is it? So iron and steel, for iron and steel, the manufacturing process starts from the initial melting phase and goes all the way through to coating. But as I say, the individual construction materials, the manufacturing process is going to be defined individually. And there's a lot of debate over how that should be defined and what the requirements should be. There are also concerns about getting these materials. You know, the federal government can say you have to use American-made manufactured products, for example, But if the particular manufactured product you need for your infrastructure project is only made overseas, then you have to get a waiver. And the waiver process is receiving more scrutiny than it used to. And that's by intention uh, of the Biden administration. And actually, they're continuing initiatives that started under the Trump administration, emphasizing the use of American-made products. But the practical effects of this trying to spend all this money and follow the rules, it's going to be very challenging. And some of the people that are going to have to follow the rules, new state and local governments, for example, that maybe aren't used to these big infrastructure projects and new commercial construction contractors, they'll have extra challenges because they're not familiar with the framework. Got it. Yeah. So therefore, they need somebody like you to check out to make sure they're complying with the rules. But simply buying from a U.S. firm as your prime supplier will not cut it because you need to know where the supply chain leads beyond the company that you buy the finished material from to go into that project. Right. And for manufactured products, there's a components test as well. Not only does the manufactured product itself need to be manufactured in the United States, but 55% of the cost of the components 
has to be of components that are produced in the United States. Right. So it's not uh, just raw materials and the construction framework stuff. I mean, if you're using aluminum, well, aluminum is most of the bauxite comes from Arkansas, I think, or something. I don't know. The biggest bauxite producer happens to be Australia, but the aluminum could be smelted here and then you're okay. But computer systems, HVAC systems for buildings or control systems for bridges and lights. There's a lot of technology in a bridge that you may not be aware of. That also has to be sourced in the United States and have U.S. components in it. That's right. And it gets very complicated. The other major concern that trade experts have raised with the uniform guidance is coverage of the U.S. obligations under trade agreements. Now, this is a little bit different from the federal procurement contract context because state and local governments are not mandatorily covered under trade agreements like the World Trade Organization government procurement agreement. But many states and some cities and localities have opted into the WTO GPA and other trade agreements. And the uniform guidance doesn't exempt instances where trade agreements may come into play. And there are concerns about upsetting our trading partners. Yes, right. I mean, suppose, you know, some partners that I think come under exceptions, say Canada, I think Japan, maybe some of the EU countries might have technology that could go into a infrastructure project. You don't want to rule them out necessarily because of that concern you just mentioned. Yes. And also, if construction contractors aren't able to use, say, European goods under the WTO GPA, then that makes it even more difficult to find the sources they need to do the projects. I guess I'll get into the bridge signal lighting tracking business and make everything here. Yeah, there you go. The problem is that it takes time for companies to move manufacturing operations to the United States. And so this is going to be a gradual process, and there are going to be real growing pains in the practical implications here, trying to comply with the rules while manufacturing processes change and things are reshored, so to speak. All right. So pay attention and know your supply chain. I guess the beauty of it is the heavier the material, like sheetrock, concrete, those kinds of things are all produced locally, you know, within 50 miles of where they're consumed because they're too expensive to ship. But the more refined and the more high tech it gets, probably the more you have to worry. I think that's fair. All right. Dan Ramish is a procurement attorney at Haynes Boone. Thanks so much for joining me. Thanks, Tom. And we'll post this interview at federalnewsnetwork.com slash Federal Drive. Hear the All-American Federal Drive on your schedule. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Hello, and welcome to the Lessons in Leadership podcast. I'm your host, Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA. Today, I'm thrilled to be joined by Dr. David Wilson, president of Morgan State University. David has had a fascinating career and has garnered a long record of accomplishments from more than 30 years of experience in higher education administration. Came to Morgan State in 2010 from the University of Wisconsin, where he was chancellor of both the University of Wisconsin Colleges and the University of Wisconsin Extension. Before that, he held numerous other administrative posts in academia, including vice president for the University of Outreach, associate provost at Auburn University, and um, associate provost of Rutgers. And when we were talking earlier, too, you had just mentioned that you had a, um, a wonderful nomination at the American Academy of Arts and Sciences. And David, thank you so much for joining me. Uh, Shane, it is indeed a pleasure uh, to be invited into this conversation with you. 
It's not in your um, in the short bio here, but I also know you served in some capacity in the Obama administration. Yes, I did. As a matter of fact, as I was leaving the University of Wisconsin, where I oversaw the UW colleges, I accepted the presidency at Morgan. And on my way into the presidency at Morgan in 2010, my name was advanced to President Obama to be considered as a member of his board of advisors on historically black colleges and universities. And so I accepted and served there for eight years during his two terms. Amazing. You've had a fascinating career at numerous universities across the U.S. How did you become passionate about the education field? And what are some of the biggest lessons that you've learned? First of all, I was made aware of a quote by Horace Mann, who was great 19th century educator who really gave rise to public education in the United States. And he was the first to utter the phrase that education is the great equalizer. And why that resonated with me was because I grew up in abject poverty uh, in rural Alabama, and there was no law in Alabama as I was growing up that required black kids to go to school. I was kind of shut off from formal education on a consistent basis. I didn't get a chance to go to school full-time until I was in the seventh grade. We lived on property there that were owned by um, the white landowners. And so the um, owner of the property, a white woman, would bring down to this little shanty that we lived in, and she would bring Look and Life magazines. My mom, uh, she would make us as children plaster these pages of Look and Life magazines against the wall of this little shanty to keep the cold wind out. I would take a kerosene lamp and go around the walls reading those articles in Look and Life magazines, which is when I first came across the phrase of Horace Mann. Hmm. From that point on, I committed myself you know, to education. It's an amazing story, and two things occur to me. One, it's almost incomprehensible that this happened during our lifetime. That, to me, is uh, almost shocking. It's also truly inspiring that you recognized that you could do more and sought out to do that and were successful at it. So when you think back on that experience, how has that informed, shaped, influenced your leadership position now as president of Morgan State? It, It had to have had an impact, but how would you articulate that? So if you go back to that Alabama environment, what I saw, it was just so many people, my own brothers and sisters, who were 10 times smarter than I was. But my first five brothers were literate. They never got an opportunity to show the nation how brilliant they were. Therefore, I really took on this whole notion that my life had to be about ensuring that individuals who were drowning in potential and they didn't realize it would be in a position where they would realize it. I was never ever about positions that would enable me simply to replicate privilege. I don't care where you went to school. I don't care what type of family you came from. I think that's where sometimes we kind of get education wrong. Uh, We have institutions that want to define themselves based on how many students they don't admit. I'm about just the opposite, taking individuals who are absolutely stellar and don't realize it and 
bringing that into existence for them. You've had so many opportunities that you could do other things, perhaps, at um, larger organizations. But you're where you want to be on purpose, by design, for the kinds of reasons you just talked about, that it's, it's fulfilling. But can you talk a little bit more about that? There have been so many so-called top 50 institutions in the United States that have come aggressively after me. And, you know, I flirted with a couple of them. And I went home to Alabama because these two were very serious. And my family is brutally honest with me, and they keep me grounded. So I flew down and began to talk with them about these institutions that were coming after me. I was thinking they would be impressed. And when I finished, my youngest sister said to me, now, are you finished? Clearly, we are not understanding why you would even consider leaving Morgan. It just reassured me uh, that I'm living my purpose at Morgan. And it is joyful uh, to be at a place where you want to be versus being at a place where others think you should be. One question that I always have to ask, is there one leader or maybe a couple of leaders that have inspired you, that have, you mentioned Horace Mann, I don't know if, if that fits in this category, but what might be a couple of leaders that you remember that, that inspired you, that gave you a purpose, helped shape your life? In 1989, when I was selected as a W.K. Kellogg Fellow, we had to be introduced to leadership that was different in a lot of ways than the leadership that we had been exposed to. In February of 1990, uh, Mr. Nelson Mandela was released. And that's where I wanted to go and meet Mr. Mandela. We had no idea that he would grant an audience, and he did. He granted an wow. audience, and uh, Mr. Walter Sasulu did as well. So here I am, having grown up in Alabama, I harbored some anger toward the society there that kept me from realizing my potential and then kept so many others like me from ever realizing their potential. At the end of a conversation that we had, someone asked Mr. Sasulu, we're leaving this conversation thinking that you harbor no anger towards a society that locked you away for 27 years. Are we leaving with the correct conclusion? He said, I harbored no anger or bitterness towards a society that locked me away for all of those years because I and others like me knew that what we were doing was the right thing. If you commit yourself to doing the right thing, there should never, ever be any space in your heart for anger or bitterness. And that was transformational for me and why I respect and admire Mr. Nelson Mandela and Mr. Walter Sisulu today. That is a great story, and it you know, with all the accomplishments through your life, I'm sure it had a great impact on your ability to to go as far as you have, and you're still going. Well, uh, I, I have a takeaway in, in terms of leadership lessons I've learned. We would be well served as a nation if I think we created these opportunities for young people at various stages to really, first of all, see the United States. And then we need that same opportunity globally. As a result, when you do that, you understand the history over here. You understand the culture over here. You understand, and you got to understand the world beyond an intellectual understanding. You want to think of your maturation in a way where your brain can never, ever, ever be hacked. (laughs) 
So that's sort of the way that's sort of I, the I way that I kind of see all of that. You that's know? <laughs> and um, being born in rural Southwest uh, Kansas, flyover country, as they say, I can I can tell you that your your comments about travel and getting out, not just reading about it, but actually traveling, it, it really is important. It's absolutely critical for someone's personal development. I I, I happen to think so. Well, Dr. <laughs> David Wilson, thank you so much. I love every single piece of today, but also your life story. It's really impressive, inspiring, and thank you for sharing it. Shane, today. thank you very much for inviting me to have this conversation with you again. And I'm Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA. We'll see you next time on the Lessons in Leadership podcast.